0: Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on The Agenda, are going to be having a chat about Amelia Earhart, a pioneering aviator who broke all sorts of records throughout her life, including, of course, being the first woman and second person ever to fly solo across the Atlantic. Earhart's life was one of constant and determined adventure. She didn't let anything or anyone slow her down, and certainly not the fact that she was a woman as she attempted to break into an industry Utterly dominated by men. Earhart's feats in the air resulted in her becoming uh, within her own lifetime a huge celebrity of international renown as she, you know, went around setting or breaking all these records, quite aside from crossing the Atlantic as she was flying planes. And because of her feats, as a pilot, she became wealthy and successful, and she put that wealth and that fame to very good use. Let me tell you, she was a staunch believer in women's rights. Um, Earhart worked tirelessly to help other women succeed in industries dominated by men, particularly in aviation. Uh, She helped found the 99s, which is an organization for female pilots, still around today. And much of her life on the ground was devoted to giving, you know, the glass ceiling a a proper battering. But uh, most of her life in the air as a uh, first-rate pilot was was spent flying enormous distances. She set all sorts of records for long flights, often solo, uh, and was always hungry for the next challenge, too. Never satisfied to stop and say, I've had enough of this, don't worry about it. Even after achieving some monumental accomplishment, she'd already always be thinking about what was next. She was an uncompromising and utterly determined adventurer, Uh, And even today, she's a figure that inspires generations of of, of women and girls. I mean, so much so that my very own sister is named after her, Amelia Gay Millsy. Um, But as you may know, however, uh, the end of Amelia Earhart's life is is not a happy one, uh, as her adventuring eventually brought about the end of her life. But look, we'll get to that before we do. A quick thanks uh, to alert listeners, Tony Ziegel and Bree, both of whom have written in, suggesting Earhart as a topic. So thanks very much. Good on the both of you. But let's get uh, let's get underway. We've got so much to get across, of course. So let's get stuck in here with the story of Amelia Earhart. Off we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1897, to the 24th of July, when Amelia Mary Earhart was born in a little town called Atchison in Kansas, in the United States. Uh, her dad's name was Samuel Edwin Earhart. And her mum's name was, you know, confusingly enough, also, Amelia Earhart, not just it's not just European royalty that likes to make names confusing for historians, no, no. But it does seem that both of her parents were quite progressive and, and rather forward-thinking, as they didn't raise both young Earhart and her sister Grace, who was known by her middle name Muriel, or by her nickname Pidge, interestingly, uh, didn't raise these two girls as young girls would have traditionally been raised at this time and this place in history. Earhart was out with her sister every day, exploring the area around where she lived, collecting bugs and frogs and creepy crawlies, climbing trees, wrestling with the neighborhood's boys. Uh, and at one point at the age of seven, she and her uncle affixed a ramp to the roof of a tool shed and she went down it in a sled. And look, you know, perhaps this instilled a love of flying through the air in young Earhart, although this first flight was both very brief and also ended with her busting her lip and tearing her clothes so it wasn't the most successful flight that she ever had but maybe that's where it started we don't know in 1907 Earhart's family relocated to a city called Des Moines in the state of Iowa um, and it's there that Earhart went to school for the first time up until then she'd been homeschooled but sadly around this time things took a, a real turn for the worse for her family her grandma died uh, although uh, in doing so she left a lot of money uh, in, in a trust to Earhart which certainly helped her later on with the expenses involved with the aviation. But in addition to this, um, her father's alcoholism got the better of him, and unfortunately, he lost his job. And in his renewed search for work, Earhart's family was uprooted and had to to move across the country several times, ultimately ending up in Chicago. And it was there in Chicago that Earhart graduated high school in 1916, began a university course uh, after relocating once again, this time to Pennsylvania. And she seemed to, as a young woman, seemed to have a huge range, very broad range of interests when it came to a potential career. And she was particularly interested in women, uh, particularly inspired by women who were succeeding in traditionally male-dominated fields. She looked up to these women who were breaking into areas such as law and engineering and management and the like. She was inspired by them. She kept a scrapbook of newspaper cuttings uh, about these women. And of course, I mean, as you and I know today, it wouldn't be very long before she herself was joining these glass ceiling-breaking women. But university would not be the path that she took to this outcome, and she never did actually finish the degree that she started in Pennsylvania, although for a very good reason. In 1917, she visited her sister, who was living in Toronto up in Canada, and after seeing wounded soldiers returning from the First World War, which, of course, had been going on for years by now, she trained as a nurse to help these poor blokes and she worked in a military hospital there in Toronto taking taking care of soldiers as they convalesced back in back in Canada. And it is here, while working in this military hospital, that Earhart's fascination with flying really began. As she heard stories from returning pilots about the war, uh, heard about the planes that they flew, the adventures that they had. But it would be a while before she was, uh, she was in a plane herself. Her work as a, as a nurse hadn't yet finished uh, because, of course, in 1918, in addition to the war, there was the onset of the Spanish flu. And this saw her workload balloon out of control as it ripped through Toronto. She herself also fell victim to illness. Uh, she developed terrible pneumonia and, uh, and sinusitis the sinusitis ended up being so bad it plagued her for years afterwards so she'd actually have to sometimes disguise the fact that she had a small drainage tube that would be snu- stuck up her schnoz while flying she actually if you ever see a photo of her with a small bandage on her face it's because she had to have this this drainage tube to help her sinuses drain out because of how bad her sinusitis was something that uh, that, that really messed with her for, for a number of years throughout her life anyway in, uh, in Toronto, something else happened, uh, something else took place that, that really helped to ignite Earhart's interest in flying. In 1919, she visited an air show, which included exhibitions from returned aces, flying aces from the war. And the story goes that while watching these, these pilots, you know, do all their tricks up in the air and whatever else, the story goes that one of these aces actually dove his plane down towards the people watching right, where, right to where Earhart herself was standing watching this show. Uh, he dove down, you know, give them a thrill, give them a fright, a shock and, and scare them, make them scatter off as, uh, and, and try to run away from the plane. But Earhart apparently wasn't phased didn't move as the plane buzzed past her and later had the following to say about this encounter. This is what she said. I did not understand it at the time, but I believe that that little red airplane said something to me as it swished by. And this growing feeling that she belonged in the sky only became stronger in the coming time, as in late 1920." Uh, Earhart uh, visited another air show after another relocation. She's moved again once once again this time into California. And in this uh, Californian air show in 1920, she actually went up in a plane for the first time. She enjoyed a 10-minute joyride as a passenger flown by Frank Hawks, a, a First World War pilot who would go on to become a very famous air racer. But after this flight, as brief as it was, there was no doubt in her mind whatsoever. She was born to fly and within a week she was taking flying lessons at, at, at I might add, quite a considerable expense. They they cost upwards of $1,000 in total, over $16,000 in today's terms. But there was no stopping her. There was no stopping her. Throughout the first half of 1921, she learned to fly. She cut her hair short like other female pilots. She bought a plane of her own and a brand new leather flying coat to go with it, looking very spick and span out there on the one runway until she realized that all the other pilots were teasing her and laughing at her because of how pristine this jacket was. She actually copped a lot of flack for wearing such a, a brand spanking new jacket. And so in order to stop being laughed at by by other pilots, she started to deliberately bust the jacket up. She tried to make it look all weathered and worn. She would uh, she would damage it deliberately. She would pour oil on it. She, she even slept in it, right, to make it look well-worn ahead of schedule. Anyway... She also flew and flew and flew and flew. And in 1922, she set a a world record, the first of many that she would hold uh, by by becoming the highest flying female pilot so far, flying up to an altitude of 4,300 meters. And then in 1923, she finally received her pilot's license from the Federation Aeronautique Internationale, uh, the FAI. Uh, a feat that had only really been achieved by very few women at this point. Uh, Raymond de la Roche had been the first back in 1910, and and Earhart was only the 16th American woman to receive a pilot's license, the first being Harriet Quimby back in 1911. But I'm sorry to say that um, after receiving her pilot's license, the next couple of years weren't very kind to Earhart or to her family uh, for a couple of different reasons. You remember I, I briefly mentioned before the fact that Earhart's grandma had left her a stack of money when she died, and that money was, was very helpful in funding the significant costs involved with learning to become a pilot, in addition to Earhart working a ton of different jobs uh, to finance her dream. But these costs became a little more difficult to bear when other investments that Earhart made with all the money fell apart. Uh, she lost a lot of money in failed investments, was forced to sell the plane that she'd bought. And then in 1924, her sinusitis became so bad she needed a series of operations. So things really aren't going well for her. And on top of that, her parents then got divorced. Earhart ended up driving across the, uh, the United States from California through Canada all the way over to Massachusetts with her mum and there, she was hoping to uh, to return to university. She was looking at going to MIT for a while, but uh, unfortunately, it just wasn't an option. It wasn't an option for her, given how little money she and her family had by now. So instead, she put her nose to the grindstone and she worked. She worked as a teacher and then worked as a social worker. But I'll, I'll tell you this: her interest in flying didn't diminish, and the reputation that she had already built uh, as you know one of the world's leading female pilots. Uh, certainly helped her in that regard. She joined a local aviation club in Boston. And in 1927, she flew the first official flight out of the brand new Denison Airport in South Boston in Quincy. Um, and as I say, she had a very well-established reputation in the world of aviation, despite her financial difficulties. And this reputation only grew and grew further in that same year in 1927 because of something that uh, that came along to propel her even further into the public eye. 1927 was a very big year in aviation, as you may know, because it was the year that Charles Lindbergh completed his famous solo flight across the Atlantic. And I will mention very quickly here, this wasn't the first time that someone had flown across the Atlantic, just the first time that someone had done it by themselves. Lindbergh was the first person to fly solo across the Atlantic Um, and, and also, in fairness, the first person to fly all the way from New York to Paris without stopping. Uh, a, a huge achievement. No one's t- taking that away from him. He was in the air for over 33 hours. He travelled almost 6,000 kilometres. But the first ever transatlantic flight actually took place many years beforehand. In 1919, when John Olcock and Arthur Brown flew from Newfoundland in Canada to County Galway in Ireland. Now, this is a shorter flight, 16 hours in length, just over 3,000 kilometres in distance. But it did mark the first time in history that humans had flown nonstop over the Atlantic. Unfortunately, we tend to forget about these two blokes. And Lindbergh, which is with his much longer solo flight, tends to get more credit, which is a bit of a shame because Lindbergh, really wasn't a great guy. He was a bigoted white supremacist with Nazi sympathies, so it's a shame that he gets so much of this historical spotlight. In any case, the world was abuzz with talk of Lindbergh's flight, and further transatlantic flights began to be planned, one of which involved Earhart. In April 1928, she was contacted and offered a seat on a flight from Newfoundland to Wales, giving her the chance to become the first woman to cross the Atlantic in an aeroplane. Now, she wouldn't be the pilot, the job that was assigned to her was overseeing the flight log, but it was still an opportunity to put her name into the history books, and Earhart took this opportunity. The flight was a success in June 1928 in just under 21 hours. Pilot Wilma Stultz flew across the Atlantic with Earhart and a co pilot, Lewis Gordon. But Earhart, unfortunately, was little more than a passenger in this whole affair. There wasn't really that much for her to do with the logbook, and after after landing, when she was interviewed, she described herself as baggage, like a sack of potatoes, she said. Although she did add something very important when interviewed. Uh, she said, <clears throat> Maybe someday I'll try it alone. In any case, despite not having much of an active role in the operation of the flight itself. Merely being the first woman to fly across the Atlantic was a very, very good for Earhart and her reputation as an aviator. Because after returning to the US, she was met with a hero's welcome. She was received by US President Calvin Coolidge at the White House and went on a very successful lecture tour talking about her experience in the aviation industry. And this helped to repair her ailing finances in addition to a huge number of product endorsement opportunities that she was offered that also came with considerable paydays. Uh, she didn't hesitate to cash in on her reputation. She began to promote clothing and fashion and luggage and also, unfortunately, cigarettes. Um, but perhaps most importantly, she, along with Lindbergh, began to promote commercial air travel, which was still a you know pretty new field that people in some parts of the world were a little wary of. So Earhart did what she could to improve the public perception of aviation, of getting into a plane to travel somewhere, and she made a lot of money doing it. She began to write in magazines about the growing industry and especially the role that women could play within it. And this was the other focus of hers during this period, as she became a bigger celebrity than ever before. She invested money in things like the aviation industry helping to establish and service regional airlines within the US, but she I mean she also invested in herself and her brand. In 1928 she became the first woman to fly solo across North America and back and in 1929 she entered the world of women's air racing. But some of the most important work that she did during this period in her in her career as her celebrity took off was investing in women in aviation more generally, helping to establish an organisation called the 99s. I mentioned it before. It still exists to this very day. It seeks to aid and support and advance women in the aviation industry. And Earhart became the first ever president of the 99s in 1930. She used the position to campaign for expanded roles for women in the world of aviation and more broadly advance the feminist cause in whatever way she could. On a more personal note as well, I will add, in 1931, she also got married, and uh, and the reason I mention this is because her approach to and her perspectives on marriage, they say a lot about the person that she was, particularly given the times in which she lived. Earhart married a bloke named George P. Putnam, uh, who, and she seemed a little reluctant to do this. The bloke had to propose to her six times before she finally accepted but she didn't take Putnam's last name. She refused to consider herself his inferior in the relationship, and she continued to enthusiastically pursue her own career. She didn't even go on a honeymoon with him because she was so busy with work. She just landed a lucrative chewing gum endorsement deal, and she wasn't, she wasn't about to let that one slip through her fingers. So harking back to her parents' very progressive approach to Earhart's upbringing, her marriage seemed to be cut from the same cloth in that it was a very modern one. In fact, on the day of the wedding itself, Earhart gave Putnam a letter in which she'd written, I want you to understand that I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness to me, nor shall I consider myself bound to you similarly. I may have to keep some place where I can go to be by myself now and then, for I cannot guarantee to endure at all times the confinement of even an attractive cage. So good on her, honestly. As a driven and motivated and career focused woman, Earhart was well ahead of her time with views like this. Anyway, in the early 1930s, Earhart was cooking up something uh, something pretty special for everyone to enjoy, and she seems to have done this on the downline. I don't know why she was doing this with such, such secrecy, but uh, she she didn't seem to want people to know what she was up to. And so this is why a famous pilot whose name was Bernd Balchen, right, he was, uh, he was planning a flight to the Arctic, and uh, he was known to be fiddly-farting around with uh, this plane, a, a single-engine Lockheed Vega 5B, an old monoplane, become very well-known, this model, in the early years of aviation. It was reliable, it was tough, able to fly long distances, and this meant it was perfect. It was the perfect craft for, uh, for record-breaking aviators, and it wasn't a surprise to see uh, Balchen mucking about with, uh, with the Lockheed Vega. But little did people know that he wasn't helping to prepare this plane for himself and his own expedition to the Arctic. No, no. The plane belonged, of course, to Earhart, who was planning a record-breaking trip of her own. Earhart was planning to become the second person and first woman in history to fly solo across the Atlantic. And she had sought out Balchin as an advisor, and also as a smokescreen to disguise what was really going on. Ultimately, by May 1932, everything was ready uh, for Earhart to make this attempt, and so she travelled out to Newfoundland with her Vega, painted bright red, ready to go. She planned to fly from Newfoundland all the way across the Atlantic to Paris, and she took with her a copy of a newspaper so as to prove uh, which date she left on the 20th of May. She could get there, hold up the paper and, and prove to everyone that she had left as late as the 20th of May. And so she set off from Newfoundland uh, and unfortunately the flight was not an easy one. There were freezing conditions and strong winds, there were mechanical issues with the plane, all of these things came together to really hamper her journey, so much so in fact that she didn't make it to Paris's plan, she didn't make it to France. But she did make it across the Atlantic, I'm happy to say, and she became the second person in history to make the journey solo. But instead of landing in Paris, Earhart instead landed in a field in Northern Ireland after almost 15 hours in the air. And a rather confused farmer who was around when she landed came out to greet her and, you know, made polite conversation with her as, uh, after she'd landed, asking if she'd flown far. And I mean, look, I bet he, I bet he couldn't believe it when Earhart turned to him and replied, from America. But it was true. She had flown solo and nonstop all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. And this was, as you can imagine, a monumental achievement only done once before in history and never before by a woman. And Earhart quickly received a huge number of richly deserved accolades. She received medals in both Europe and back at home in the United States parade. She's hanging out with the US president. This time it's Herbert Hoover Uh, and her reputation soared yet higher in the wake of her transatlantic crossing. But she didn't stop there. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, I mentioned before, she was never satisfied. She was never ready to stop and uh, and, rest to, and rest on her laurels. She kept going with solo flights in the years after this transatlantic flight. She became the first person to fly solo from Hawaii to California, which was actually such a smooth flight in contrast to the one across the Atlantic, that she was able to relax and put the plane on autopilot and listen to the radio as she approached the coastline. And this flight, many others were all done in a red Lockheed Vega. She flew solo from Los Angeles to Mexico City and then from Mexico City to Newark, which is just outside New York. Uh, Although landing in Newark uh, was, uh, was a little difficult, made a little difficult for her by the people that had come out to see her. So many people had assembled in Newark to watch her land that they made it quite difficult for her to safely touch down and taxi. The crowds were so large and so thick that she had a hard time, you know, not... Bloody chopping their heads off with the propeller as she as she came in uh, and, and tried to get out of her plane. Uh, she also got involved in air racing. Uh, once again, she she'd been involved in a little bit in the past, but it has to be said this wasn't really her strong suit as an aviator. She she was accustomed to flying slower, uh, more reliable, long distance planes, not the quick races that so outstri- uh, quote so easily and quickly outstripped her Vega. But all the same, she still sets set all sorts of records for both speed and distance. Uh, in her and other aircrafts but let me tell you this again it wasn't enough and in 1936 she's already cooking up her next great adventure millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right After a fire destroyed their house in New York, Earhart and her husband decided to move to California. I mean, she never stayed put for long. She was constantly on the move. And it was out on the West Coast that she began to make preparations for an incredibly ambitious undertaking. A flight around the entire world. Now, this had already been done, uh, although with certain conditions i guess that uh that not to say that it was less impressive but certainly wasn't a an achievement on the scale of the one that Earhart was planning back in 1924 a small team of u.s military pilots had circumnavigated the earth although the route that they took uh, kept them entirely within the Northern Hemisphere. So it wasn't, it wasn't the longest route you could take. In 1930, Australian Charles Kingsford Smith led the team that was the first to circumnavigate the world by air on a route that included both hemispheres, uh, and it also included the, the first trans-Pacific flight. But Earhart was going to do better than both of these expeditions. She had a different idea. She wanted to circumnavigate the world while staying as close as possible to the equator. And this would make the journey a much longer and much more difficult one than those that had gone before her. Obviously, I mean, if you stick to one hemisphere, you'll have a much easier time crossing each line of longitude. I mean, if it were me, I would go back to 1923 before the Americans made it around the world. I'd get in a plane, I'd fly to one of the poles and I'd spend five minutes flying around it in a circle. Bam, job done. Circumnavigation complete. Crossed every line of longitude in five minutes, mate. What are you going to do about it? But Earhart wasn't interested in shortcuts. Quite the opposite, in fact. And so in 1936, as I say, she began to plan this long flight that would see her travel around 47,000 kilometres as she attempted to circumnavigate the world. Not in one go, I might add as well. Important to say all of these flights had stops, lots of them, in fact. Uh, It wouldn't be be until 1949 that an aircraft would fly all the way around the world without stopping. And even then, that was with uh, four in-flight refuelings. Anyway, <coughs> Lockheed built Earhart a custom-designed plane, an Electra 10E, with modifications that included a massively increased fuel capacity. Enormous tanks were, uh, were worked in the fuselage. Um, and Earhart selected a bloke whose name was Harry Manning to join her as her navigator. Uh, he was a skilled navigator, very good with radio equipment as well, also a trained pilot. However, given the length of the journey and, you know, how critically important accuracy would be with navigation, Earhart ultimately decided to bring in a second navigator as well. And I have to say at this point that Manning had been a bit wobbly with some of the navigation that he'd done on some test flights. Earhart wanted to cover her bases, brought someone else on. Um, And this bloke was a fellow named Fred Noonan. He was another very experienced navigator. He previously worked as a navigation trainer for commercial airlines, but Earhart only needed these navigators for the really tricky part of the flight, right, as, as she crossed the Pacific. The plan was to fly to, from, from California to Hawaii. She'd done that before. And then uh, rely on the navigators to get her across the rest of the Pacific Ocean to Australia. And there, they'd remain behind while uh, she continued on by herself for the rest of the way uh, across a mostly land-based route, apart from, of course, the flight across the Atlantic. But, I mean, she's already done that, so easy peasy. Preparations were made, the aircraft was made ready, the crew were assembled, and on the 17th of March 1937, Earhart set off on what was to be this incredible voyage with Manning and Noonan. However, it did not get off to a smooth start at all. Quite the opposite, in fact. Uh, After flying from California to Hawaii, uh, Earhart's plane needed servicing and repairs due to some mechanical issues, and then when attempting to take off from Hawaii on the next part of the journey... The plane nearly fell apart on the runway while it was taking off. The landing gear gave way. The plane collapsed onto its undercarriage and skidded along the runway. An absolute disaster, of course. The plane is nearly in bits, although I suppose it's a small mercy that it happened early on in the trip rather than, you know, halfway through, because uh, what Earhart did was just load the load the plane onto a ship, sailed it back to the US for, for repairs in California, and, and regrouped, got ready to make a second attempt. However, this attempt would be made without Manning. Manning decided enough was enough. He was out. He had taken time off work to be part of the journey, and this new delay was was, was stretching it out far too long for him. It was too much, and so he parted ways with Earhart, leaving her with just Noonan. Now, not a problem when it came to navigation. Noonan, you know, was, was well up to the task, but... Neither Earhart or Noonan were particularly experienced with radio operation, which—well, I was going to say—which meant, but what it means, you'll you'll find out in due course. Anyway, the Electra was repaired. Uh, Earhart and Noonan raised more funds to cover the uh, the their new attempt, and they also revised their travel plans. The initial plan had been to fly uh, to, to fly east to west. Uh, that'd been the first attempt, you know, leaving California towards Hawaii. But they instead decided to fly west to east as a result of some shifts in weather and wind patterns. And so, hoping for a better start than last time, Earhart and Noonan were once again ready to go, and they set off from California on the 20th of May, 1937. And this time, they made it across the continental US with no problems at all. They got to Florida without any issues, and it was there and then that Earhart announced her plans to fly all the way around the world. These plans were finally made public. Everyone was very, very excited, of course, as you might imagine. They are excited to see Earhart, who by now again was an internationally renowned celebrity. They're excited to see her head off on this endeavor, uh, and this would, you know, upon completion, it would be a Huge, a colossal achievement to add to her already stacked CV. So she set off. She and Noonan, they left, uh, they departed Florida on the 1st of June, 1937, and they flew first to Puerto Rico, then to Venezuela, then to Suriname, and finally to Brazil before uh, crossing the Atlantic. This time, rather than going from Canada to Ireland, Earhart flew across the Atlantic from Brazil to Senegal in Africa and then flew across the southern edge of the Sahara. From Senegal, she flew east to Colonial Sudan, and then to the edge of the Red Sea. And after departing from the African coast of the Red Sea, she set yet another record for herself, as she made the first ever non-stop flight from the Red Sea to the Indian subcontinent. She flew across India, and then through Burma and Siam, which is today's Thailand, before heading to Singapore, and then the Dutch East Indies, which is, of course, today Indonesia. Now, in what is today Indonesia, Earhart ran into some issues at this point. She'd been flying for almost four weeks, right, and both she and the plane by now had actually ended up in uh, well, in you know, less than an ideal condition. At one point, while flying through Indonesia, uh, Earhart had to had to turn the plane around, retrace her steps, so it could be repaired. Uh, while she herself was unwell with dysentery. So really kind of been a nice time, you know, you're up in the plane every day, flying with dysentery, rough old time for her, you would have thought. But her tenacity, her determination saw her pull through, and she pressed on all the same. And on the 29th of June, she arrived in Darwin, up in the north of Australia, of course. And after staying there for a few days, uh, she flew to the town of Ley in what is today Papua New Guinea. And that landing, I'm sorry to say, was the last successful one that she ever made. Because we come now to the tragic part of the story of Amelia Earhart. Her complete and total disappearance after her departure from Ley en route to her next stop, Howland Island. Howland Island is an absolutely Tiny island in the remote Pacific. It is 2.6 square kilometers in size. It's just over two kilometers long and less than a kilometer wide. It is tiny. It's found uh, just over 3,000 kilometers south of Hawaii. It's really nothing more than an eggplant shaped strip of sand and vegetation in the middle of nowhere, inhabited today by some birds and not much else. Back in 1937, there was a very, very small settlement and a rudimentary landing strip that were overseen by a handful of people. Um, And they'd prepared the island for Earhart's planned arrival, but she never arrived. And to this day, we still don't really know with any degree of certainty what happened to Amelia Earhart. Earhart and Noonan departed late in the morning of the 2nd of July, 1937. Uh, They planned a flight of 20 hours to arrive at Howland Island. They had plenty of fuel for this journey. They had had more than enough to get them there. Um, And in order to aid them in navigating their way to this tiny, tiny strip of land in the middle of the Pacific, the U.S. Coast Guard had deployed a ship called the Itasca, to Howland Island, and uh, they were going to send off signals that would aid Earhart in navigating to her destination, radio homing, beacon signal, or other stuff, technical things that I don't fully understand. Suffice to say, they didn't work. As Earhart flew towards Howland Island, her ra- her radio broadcasts were coming through loud and clear to the Atasca They could hear the stuff that she was saying. She reported on the flying conditions, on the wind and the weather. But she wasn't able to receive any voice transmissions whatsoever back from the ship. And look, I don't understand why there was a lot of information about the the technical specifications of the radios and the antennas and the other communication devices that she had on board. There's suggestions that some of it was improperly installed or that she and Noon weren't fully trained on how to use them, or they had become damaged over the, the course of a month in the air. But whatever it was, the lack of proper communication between the plane and the ship became a bigger and bigger issue as it became increasingly apparent that for some reason, Earhart was off course. Whether it was an error made by Noonan as he navigated or an equipment failure or a simple miscalculation brought on by something like time zones or crossing the dateline, Earhart wasn't able to remain on course for Howland Island. Her last confirmed position was near the Nukumanu Islands, still with almost 3,000 kilometres to go to get to Howland Island. And after that, the picture of what actually happens becomes very muddy very quickly. Earhart wasn't on course, we know that, but the reasons as to why she and Noonan and the crew on the Itasca couldn't reorient the plane and get it back on course is still something of a mystery. Earhart did report receiving some transmissions from the Itasca, not voice transmissions, but other radio signals. But the homing beacon wasn't working. There were issues with the frequencies that these transmissions were being made on, and she and Noonan were unable to use any of the signals that were being sent out from the Itasca to navigate by. There are, I mean, the reasons for why exactly these signals are unusable remain somewhat un- unclear. We can make guesses, we can make educated guesses. But we'll probably never we'll probably never know for sure. And a very unfortunate factor in this whole tragic affair is the fact that Earhart and Noonan had a real lack of expertise with radio operation. This is why having someone like Manning on the flight may have been something that changed the course of this journey, given the fact that his expertise with radio communication could have solved some of the problems that they were facing at this time. But look, the equipment they were using, it was complicated, it required expertise to use properly, especially over long distances. And there are many leading theories about the failure of communication between plane and ship that involve, as I say, things like the communication equipment, equipment the, the antenna and the like, being damaged, the fact that they weren't perhaps fit for purpose. But whatever the reason, Earhart simply could not use the Itasca to navigate to Howland Island and in the early morning of the 2nd of July, the situation grew increasingly desperate. Earhart's plane, even with its massive fuel tanks and the surplus of fuel that it had, it would run out eventually, and with nowhere to land, it would crash into the sea and doom both Earhart and Noonan. So the crew aboard the the Ataska, they are trying everything they could think of to help Earhart navigate to Howland Island. Despite receiving transmission after transmission from Earhart herself, They just couldn't talk back to her. All the signals they sent that Earhart could pick up couldn't be used for navigation because of issues with the frequency or the signal strength. And despite Earhart being just an estimated 150 kilometres away from the island, so close, whether it was damaged equipment or technical failure or issues with the frequencies used by both the plane and the ship, they just couldn't talk to each other. And as a final desperate measure the Itasca began to use its, use its engines to create great big plumes of black smoke high in the sky, hoping that Earhart would catch catch a, a glimpse of this smoke and and, and, and and fly towards it. But it was no good. Earhart's final transmission to the ship came through at 8.43 AM, stating that she was flying north to south now on a line that should, according to Noonan, intersect Howland Island. But that was the last. That was ever heard from her. With no fuel and no way to navigate to the island, Amelia Earhart was lost and her navigator with her, never to be seen again. And to this day, we still don't know what happened to her in any great detail. Look, in all likelihood, the plane plunged into the Pacific after running out of fuel, but exactly how and exactly where that happened is unknown to us. An hour after Earhart's final transmission, the Itasca began to search for the plane, sailing along the line mentioned in the last message. But the search yielded nothing. And as news of the tragedy spread, the US Navy quickly joined the search and combed the area around Howland Island and the other nearest islands in the Pacific. But nothing came of the searches, And Earhart, Noonan, and the plane were never seen again. And a year after this disappearance, Amelia Earhart was officially pronounced dead. Conjecture about her disappearance sprang up, and even today there are still all sorts of theories, some of them well-reasoned and likely, others less so. For instance, there's a theory that she wanted a way to disappear from the public eye, and take on a new life with a new identity and so use the plane disappearing as a cover story before returning to the US and living out the rest of her life. None of these theories have much credence whatsoever. The sad reality is, very probably, that Earhart simply ran out of fuel and met her end as her plane sank below the Pacific. But despite her tragic end, Amelia Earhart was and still is an extremely famous and important figure Particularly in the world of aviation, she has grown to become a feminist icon for her rejection of traditional gender norms, her determination to succeed in a world dominated by men and her unflinching support for other women in industries like aviation. No doubt spurred on by Earhart's successes in the air with the advent of the Second World War, women flocked to join air forces around the world. In the United States, an organisation known as the Women Air Force Service Pilots, or the WASPs, saw female pilots flying military planes, although they were still restricted to support and logistic roles rather than having a combat role. But still, Earhart had given the glass ceiling a proper hammering. And even today, she is an inspiration to women and girls' who seek to upset the patriarchal apple cart, just as she did. Amelia Earhart offered no compromise as she strove to become a leading figure in the world of aviation, helping to carve out a place not just for herself, but for women in an industry that was, and still is, overwhelmingly dominated by men. And in doing so, happily, she became a very successful and very wealthy international celebrity. As befits someone of her achievements, it is very sad to think about how her life ultimately came to an end, but it's also a testament to her determination to strive for greatness, to push boundaries of all kinds, and to prove to the world what she and other women everywhere are capable of. A talented pilot and determined adventurer who wouldn't let anything or anyone tie her down, Earhart set all sorts of aviation records while also campaigning for women and women's rights throughout her entire life, putting her international fame to very good use. She was a woman who lived by her own rules and one who has doubtlessly inspired generations of other women and girls to pursue their dreams just as relentlessly as she did. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Amelia Earhart. And uh, look, a very sad story at the end, certainly, but also... A, a terrific tale about an incredible woman one that i'm I'm very very happy to uh, to share on the podcast so i do hope you enjoyed this episode as much as i enjoyed uh, recording it for you anyway all the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way right now to right now to close out the episode of course net is the website and it's there you'll find links to all the uh, all the stuff that you need for the show old episodes um have had some issues with the uploading of episodes recently i do apologize for that um so thank you to the people who got in touch to let me know that there were some issues with last week's episodes uh, accessibility on various platforms um it, it's good of you to uh, to have kept me in the loop with that so i could fix it promptly um and look a renewed call for people to come and support the show financially it is great to see people jumping on the patreon bandwagon and signing up for all sorts of benefits all the behind the scenes stuff of course but all the exclusive patron only merch I mean, I'm not going to say now is the best time to, you know, there's never been a better time because the, there certainly has been, but now is still a very good time and I certainly appreciate everyone. So, everyone jumping on board. So, if you are thinking about maybe signing up for the Patreon, uh, I, I, you know, it would really be fantastic. It's such a strong motivator for me to come back every week and keep making this dumb podcast. So, if you've been on the fence about it, Now's a great time to do it. But look, you know, maybe you're looking to make a one a, one, a once-off purchase. Maybe you're looking to get yourself some some half ass history, history swag. Head over to the, the merch shop and it's there. You'll be able to find all sorts of stuff, T-shirts and coffee mugs and just a whole bevy of uh, of different products there from the podcast. Uh, if you've got any ideas for some merch that you might like, please do let me know because I'm looking to refresh refresh the merch shop, hopefully. By the end of the year, I'm giving myself a very, very generous timeline for that one. But look, thank you for listening. Whether you're a, a rusted on patron who's been with me since the start or a listener who's just picking up the podcast now, it is great to have you along. And I very much appreciate you listening to this dumb podcast. And I do have a request or two, actually, uh, leave a review of the show, if you don't mind, on iTunes or Spotify. It certainly does help the uh, the podcast spread. But there's nothing better than, than when it comes to spreading the podcast than just telling people, word of mouth. That is the simplest and easiest and most effective way to get other get this podcast into other people's ears. So if you know someone who maybe isn't even interested in history, but just wants to hear the story of the time that a German king had a bunch of his minor nobles plunged into, you know, a room full of turds to the point that many of them drowned, link them to episode 172. Get across at the Erfurt Latrine Disaster remains one of the more popular episodes, I have to admit. But there's all sorts of stuff there. If you want your friends to learn about, I don't know, nuclear weapons or potatoes or the toilet or the first circumnavigation of the globe, all sorts of stuff for them to get across. So do tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. Anyway, I've gone on a little bit with this uh, housekeeping segment. I do apologise for that, but uh, it's great to have all the real fans here at the end of the show still listening. I mean, I see, I see people tuning out. I see, I look at the stats. I see the people tune out, and the ones sticking through all the way to the end here. You're the real fans. So thanks for being here. Or you just couldn't be bothered, you know, reaching over and pressing skip to the next episode, in which case, look, still counts. That's still fine. All right. Anyway, we're going to close out the episode, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. This one, of course, to do with what else was it going to be? Aeroplanes. This one comes to us from Redditor. My name's not Robert, who asks, how do aeroplanes fly if they can't flap their wings like birds?